As you may have noticed, the title for this week's message is, What is Love? What is Love? And just to be clear, we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about love, how the Bible defines what true love is. And if you saw the title, What is Love? and your mind jumped to the Hathaway song, you started bobbing your head like Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan from the Saturday Night Live skit, we're not really on the same page. But that's okay, because today we're talking about how the Holy Spirit transforms our minds and helps us to love others the way God would have us to love. The problem is human love, as it is now, has been distorted by our sin, by our rebellion against God. But through the example of His Son, Jesus Christ, God wants to teach us what true love is. He wants to build in us a love that is far more beautiful, far more glorious, and honestly, far more loving than any love we could conjure up for ourselves, any pleasure that we could find, or even a night spent at the Roxbury. So to answer the question, what is love? We're going to look in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We've been going through the book of Philippians. This is a book written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Philippi, and he's trying to help them understand how they can rejoice and how they can grow together, even if they're separated by a great distance, which is very similar to the kind of situation that we're in right now. In just a moment, we'll read our passage, and you might notice the word love maybe shows up one time in there, but the idea, the concept of love and how we should treat others, well, that just flows through that whole passage. And as we read it, we'll see how we can rejoice in loving the way God would have us to love and in praising Him the way He desires to be praised. And we'll also discover how we can grow together to be more like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find many passages in the Bible that do a better job of describing what love is than this one right here. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, which teaches us how to love the way you loved us. I pray, God, you will build in us the attitudes of unity, humility, and selflessness. I pray that if anyone doesn't, they will know your son, Jesus Christ, so they will be able to love the way you do. And God, I pray that Jesus is our focus today, not ourselves, our problems, our interests, but may he be the one that we see. To borrow words from John the Baptist in John 3.30, I pray that this, in this time he would increase and that I and anything else would decrease. God, I pray that we see you through your son very clearly today and learn what the mind of Christ is, learn what you say about love. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Now, in that passage we just read, you might be familiar with some of those last verses. It's one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament. And you may have heard somebody teach about that before. The one phrase from verse 5 is the mind of Christ. And it often they'll start with that, and then they'll talk about what Jesus did. But the thing is, it's really not those verses talking about Jesus that tell us what the mind of Christ is. Paul's actually told us about that beforehand. A professor I had named Ben Gutierrez, he has a book called Living Out the Mind of Christ, and in that he points out that we have to refer back to the previous verses to understand what the mind of Christ is. If we look at Philippians 2 verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so it has to point back because the verses that we look at, the ones that come after verses 6 through 11, talk about things it's humanly impossible for us to do. We're just humans. We're, we're not also God, so we can't count equality with God a thing that we can grasp and hold on to. And if we look at the verse again, even the, the word, some of the grammar in it is pointing back. When he says, have this mind, he's not talking about the, what I'm about to talk about, what's coming up, have this one I'm about to talk about. No, he's saying this mind, what I just described, that's what you need to show others. Now, that doesn't mean that verses 6 through 11 are worthless. On the contrary, there's some of the verses that tell us the most about Jesus anywhere in the New Testament. But it does mean they're not telling us specifically what the mind of Christ is. And what we're going to see as we look at the verses that come before is the mind of Christ, Jesus's attitude towards life, is an attitude, it's an action that affects our thinking. And there are three attitudes of the mind of Christ that we're going to look at today. And all three are essential. You cannot just have one or two and claim to be reflecting Jesus with all your actions. So this threefold definition will then be followed by the ultimate illustration, the ultimate example. So here's what the mind of Christ is and what does that look like? That's what we're going to see in our text today. I'm going to start first thing by answering my question at the beginning. What is love? Well, I would say love is having or living out the mind of Christ. You'll notice there's an outline here. You can follow along with these notes by printing this sermon outline or by pulling it up on your computer or other electronic device. You'll find it on our church website, eshorebaptist.org, or you can sign up for our weekly emails and you'll receive it that way in a midweek email that I send. 
Well, the first point on there is, what is love? Love is having or living out the mind of Christ. The follow-up to that is, okay, but what is the mind of Christ? Well, to answer that, we're going to talk about three attitudes that we'll find in an individual who's reflecting the mind of Christ. The first of those attitudes is unity. The first attitude that makes up the mind of Christ is unity. Listen to verses 1 and 2 again. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, here it is, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I hope you see the idea of unity there, those repeated words, same, one, full accord. And this idea of unity is emphasized throughout the book of Philippians. In chapter 4, verse 2, we read about two church members that seem to be having a conflict, and Paul tells them, I entreat you, Odia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And Paul makes this unity a major theme in this letter. If you joined us last week, we were looking at the very end of chapter 1, and in Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul urges the Philippians to live in a, matter, in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what does that look like? Well, he says it's standing together in unity, putting a united front before the unbelieving world. Look at uh, verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you And what is he hearing? That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, what we're looking at right now, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And with all that unity, you will not be frightened in anything by your opponents. So then he moves into chapter 2 where we are today, and he says, so if, or so since, there is encouragement in our relationship with Christ, since we get comfort from His love if we know Him and have a relationship with Him, since we have participation, we have fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ through the Holy Spirit, since we have affection, we have sympathy, we have tenderness and compassion for our church family, since that all is true, we can have unity. Paul wants the church to not just be a collection of Christian individuals, but to be a community. Because a united community, he says in verse 2, would complete his joy. It would please him to hear that this church that he started is living for and reflecting Christ to the world. And words in that verse, I already said, make it clear what we're talking about here. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. We're to be united in this church and in all of our relationships. But this verse doesn't just tell us what biblical unity is, it actually tells us a bit about how to practice it. Because he says we're to be of the same mind, to have unity, but then there's three other phrases there that help flesh out, okay, well, what does that look like on a really practical level? And here they are. He tells us that to have the same mind, to be united, is to have the same love, be a full accord, and have one mind. The first phrase there is having the same love. It means our unity involves affection. It's a deep commitment to love 
one another, no matter whatever personality or physical differences we might have from someone. To have the same love is to love people, treat them with respect, and we'll unpack more of what love looks like, but to do that even when it's difficult to do so. The second phrase there is being in full accord. In full accord. Here we're talking about unity of spirit. We're talking about knowing, understanding one another, knowing how we think, how we feel, how we act. This is a kind of intimacy where we are so familiar with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we are able to recognize when they're going through challenges. And when we know them so well that we're able to tell not only when there's a problem, but we know enough that we're able to ask them what the problem is, that we're able to ask them how we can help solve their problem, and we're able to ask them, how can we pray for this issue going on in your life? That's part of the reason why the church exists. It mostly exists, or its primary purpose is to bring glory and praise to God, but it also exists with a benefit for us, and that's we can encourage one another. We can bear each other's burdens together. Paul will write in Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The third descriptive phrase then in this verse is, and of one mind. To be united is to have one mind. As a church, we're to have unity of purpose, commitment to our ministry, the role God has called us to. And make no mistake about it, if you are a Christian, then you are called to ministry. Ministry is not just something that pastors do. It is what every believer in Christ is called to engage in. But what is this purpose? What is it we're supposed to be doing? Why why are we here? What is this one mind we're supposed to all be working toward? Well, Jesus helps us out with that. Some of his last words before he returned to heaven were Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our purpose, making disciples, baptizing them, seeing people come to faith in Christ, and then teaching them what he has said. We should ask ourselves, are we united in that purpose? Now, we may have different gifts, different roles, different passions, but we should be united around that same end goal. Because if we strive to fulfill that purpose, that great commission for God's glory, well, then we can know that our labor will not be in vain. And we can know we're living out this attitude of unity that helps make up the mind of Christ. So will you practice all three aspects of unity? Do do you love your fellow believers in Christ regardless of their personality, their appearance, their demeanor? Do you take time to get to know people who are your church family? People who you see on Sunday morning, do you take the time to get to know them outside the walls of this building? In this time, we we have to do that because we're not gathered together. And I'm not talking about just checking up on them as you're scrolling through Facebook. No, I, I mean being intimately acquainted with them in the sense that you can have a conversation about what's going on in their lives and you can pray for one another. 
I've been so encouraged to hear about those who are taking the time to reach out to others, have conversations, share how God is working, even during this season. That's the kind of unity we should have with one another. Get to know your brothers and sisters so you can help them, so you can pray intelligently for them. And then when this is over, or even in this time where we have opportunity, we can better serve and minister together for God's glory. And then third, we can be of one mind by joining together in a local body. If you're not a part of a church family, I pray that you'll seek one out. You're more than welcome to check us out. We're not the only church there is. We're not a perfect church, but I'd encourage you to be involved with people who are passionate about living for the Lord and having a relationship with Him. So the first key attitude that makes up the mind of Christ is unity, unity. But the second key attitude is humility, humility. Let's look at verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In this verse, Paul is telling us how we can demonstrate humility, not only in the church, but in our homes, with our families, at our workplaces, and in any relationship. And to do that, he's doing a bit of compare-contrast. He points out two sinful attitudes, and then he puts them against humility. These two attitudes are not to be present in the life of someone who is practicing humility. We're to do nothing from these attitudes. There's no imaginable circumstance in Paul's mind where these attitudes should be around and humility should be practiced. The first attitude he warns against is do nothing from selfish ambition. Someone works from selfish ambition when they're promoting themselves, their own glory, their own praise, rather than others of the glory of God. In other words, the path of self-promotion, that's not the attitude of Christ. That's not the path for a Christian. And that's not the path of love as God defines it. Christians should not pit themselves against other believers. The second attitude that he warns against is do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit and inflated ego. That's what happens when somebody listens to the praise of others. Now, giving praise or receiving praise, that's not wrong in and of itself, but when we depend on it, when it becomes our source of satisfaction, when we're more concerned about what others say than what God thinks, then praise becomes an idol, something we worship or we put above God himself. And idolatry has no place in the biblical definition of love. Self-promotion, pride, praise of man, these are gateway drugs into the sin of pride. And the sin of pride can destroy our personal ministry to others, and pride can destroy and ruin a life. After all, James writes that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's a day coming when those who act with selfish ambition and conceit will be dealt with by God, and I pray that that day does not involve you. So what's the opposite? If selfish ambition and conceit are what we shouldn't be doing, what is it that we should be doing? Well, the rest of verse 3 tells us that instead we're into humility, count others more significant than ourselves. And this idea was really a foreign concept, even when Paul was writing in the Greco-Roman world. It was important to glorify yourself, to make a name, to be remembered. 
but it's an essential attitude for Christians. And how do we do this? Well, if we desire to live in humility, it's important that we believe that the people we're interacting with are more significant than us. We should consider any time we have to interact with others as a privilege, and we should let others know that we feel this way. Paul himself put this into practice. The very first verse of this letter, back in chapter 1, verse 1, he begins his letter the way they wrote then. They put their names first, then who they were writing to. So he begins the letter by saying this letter is from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. But he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Do you see what Paul's doing here in this verse? He's calling the people he's writing to saints, one set apart, made holy by God. He's addressing their leaders by their proper titles, overseer, elder, pastor, deacon. But he calls himself and his co-worker Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. The word's actually a bit stronger than that. It's more like bondservant or slave of Christ, lowly servant submitted to Jesus. In this, Paul is modeling what he's talking about right here. He's taking attention off himself, even though he was the one who started this church. He had a special commission from God, but he's taking attention off himself. He's modeling unity and humility for the Philippians. That's why we all need to examine ourselves. We need to repent, turn away from attitudes of selfish ambition and conceit, and then live in humility praying that any glory for good that we do will be directed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should seek to learn from others, minister with others. We worship with believers that we come in contact with, regardless of their level of education, their ethnicity, their background, their occupation, or their financial status. So let me ask, when you interact with others, do you view them as more significant than yourself? That's a powerful word, a powerful challenge that I know I don't always do. In our conversation with others, do we acknowledge their strengths and what they do as a benefit to us? Do we express our sincere appreciation? Do we take time when we're talking, do we talk about ourselves or do we focus on God and what He is doing in the other person's life? And when we receive compliments, do we embrace them with pride or do we direct them to God and remind others that he is the one who's ultimately responsible for any good we do? In all of this, though, we need to remember that humility is not just the words that we say, because nothing is as off-putting as someone showing false humility. True, godly humility is not about saying words to make people pity us. It's about directing attention away from ourselves onto the other person or onto God for his praise and his glory. Let's talk now about this last attitude of the mind of Christ, which is selflessness. Selflessness. The word's not there, but listen to verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Again, like he did in verse 3, Paul's telling us what we should not do and what we should do. We should not always be concerned with our own interest. Instead, we should be concerned about what's going on in the lives of others. And this is very different from how we as humans often think about ourselves. 
the author C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, talking about love, says love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It's not an emotion. It is a state not of feelings, but of will, of choice, of action. The state of will, which we naturally have about ourselves, we love ourselves, we seek our own interest, but we must learn to have about other people. That means we need to discipline ourselves to be on the lookout, asking others what is going on in their lives, carefully listening to them so we can offer specific support, encouragement, and prayer. The Christian life is a life that is centered outside of ourselves. So living out the Christian life means willing to be sacrifice our interest for the interest of others. Now, to be clear, when it's saying about interest, it's not directly, not necessarily talking about things that we're interested in. Because if I need to express concern for someone's interest, and that means I have to root for the Steelers or the Cowboys, well, as an Eagles fan, I just can't do that. But that's not what it's talking about. When it says looking out for the interest of others, it's applying to issues, concerns, situations, needs in their life that they're concerned about. Having concern about those, putting our needs aside so we can care for them. Now, when we're doing that, we obviously are not enabling someone to engage in destructive behavior. In all cases, we're prayerfully using the wisdom that God has given us. So we can do what is truly in the best interest of whoever we're interacting with for God's glory. Someone who has embraced love as selflessness, well, they recognize that the privileges of life cannot be kept for oneself. After all, any privileges you have now will be gone whenever this life is over. So, someone who's defined by selflessness, the mind of Christ, is willing to sacrifice, lay aside their privileges in order to bless, to care for others. And this is an attitude that we don't often find in the world around us, but sometimes it pops up in things, even in entertainment. One very popular Disney movie is the movie Frozen, and there's one really great conversation in that movie. The one character, Princess Anna, has just had heartbreak, and so she confides in her friend, Olaf, I don't even know what true love is. And he has this great reply. He says, well, that's okay. I do. Love is putting someone else's needs before yours. Is that not what Paul is saying in verse 4? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, you may ask yourself, okay, well, well that, that's great, but what does this look like? How do I show this kind of selfless love? What am I doing? Well, again, back in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis helps us. He tells us we should not really be trying to create some type of attitude and affection in our hearts. Since love is a choice, it's part of the will. He says this, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Don't have the feeling, express it in actions. And so he adds then that when, are you, when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. 
In other words, the mind of Christ is an active, it's a proactive love. It involves taking the initiative to seek the benefit, the interest of someone else, to seek what actions need to be taken to meet the needs of others. And while that may seem cold to someone who thinks love is just an emotion, this mind of Christ actually leads to a greater affection for others. As Lewis concludes, the worldly man treats certain people kind because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have even imagined himself liking at the beginning. Selfless sacrifice is the mind of Christ. It is love. Now, in all of this, though, we need to say time out. I need to put a major caveat and asterisk with everything that was here. Because everything we, we talked about, it's some wonderful practical rec- recommendations, especially from Lewis there, about how we can love others. But all of that will ultimately fail us. They'll be ineffective if it's removed from the work God does in us. If we have a relationship with God, His Holy Spirit lives in us and enables us to love in this way. If we do not have a relationship with God, then we're not able to love like this. The only way we receive His Holy Spirit is in and through Christ alone, by faith with Him, through a relationship with Him. We're not just seeking the mind of love. That's not our goal. We don't just want to love others. We want to love like Christ loved. And that's why the last couple of verses give us the example of Christ, the ultimate, the perfect example of what true love is. Listen to it again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we could spend a lot of time analyzing each and every little nuance in that verse, but for now, we're going to have more a broader focus and see what Paul is doing here. He's described the attitudes that make up the mind of Christ, unity, humility, selflessness, and now he gives us this perfect illustration. This is how you see it lived out in Jesus, and because of this is the only way that you are able to do it as well. Let's look at it. In verse 6, we see this attitude of unity. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not have to steal glory from God. He did not have to steal equality with him because he was God. He lived in perfect unity with him. And in the midst of all he did on earth, Jesus did not break the unity that he had with his Father and his will. In verses 7 and 8, we see the humility of Christ. He voluntarily stepped down from the power of equality with God to become someone of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
In fact, he had a humbler birth than most. He wasn't even born in a house or, or in a hospital as we are today. He was born in a stable in the little town of Bethlehem. And then he appeared as a man masking that divine glory. He stepped down from that authority he had so he could care for others. And this is the very opposite of what we do as people. The two first people, Adam and Eve, this is what they did. Genesis 3, 4, and 6, the serpent said to the woman, if you eat this fruit, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. You will be raised up knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, to learn more, to be better, she took of its fruit and ate and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Together they tried to raise themselves up to a position of glory. Jesus did the opposite. He stepped down. And not only was he a lovely, a a lonely human, lowly on the totem pole of glory compared to God, but he also acted like a servant. He stooped so low that he, sinless and perfect, washed his sinful followers' feet. John 13 tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He lowered himself. He washed his feet. But that's not all, because he truly showed his selflessness by dying on a cross. As our text says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He sacrificed his concerns, his interest for our interests, so we could be saved, so we could have a relationship with him, so we could know God. Here we clearly see this mind of Christ Paul is talking about. Unity with God, but humility in how he lives and selflessness in putting his own interest aside. And what does that lead to? Well, verses 9 through 11 tell us he's now been exalted. He's been bestowed, given a name above every name. What this means is that at the name of Jesus, a day is coming when every knee will bow, both in heaven, on earth, under earth. Every tongue will confess and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, King, to the glory of God the Father. Where does this lead to praise? He has been exalted above everything else in creation. He's been restored to his greater glory as the eternal Son of God. He is Lord, Master, Ruler over the earth. He is worthy of complete surrender, allegiance, and praise. And as it says, there will come a day when everyone will recognize who he is, what he has done, and his power. But if we have a relationship with him, oh, we are blessed to be able to do this now. As Pastor Warren Wearsby writes, to bow before him now means salvation. To bow before him at the judgment needs condemnation. There's really not a need for me to illustrate these verses anymore. These verses themselves are the illustration of the mind of Christ. But they also tell us how we can live it out. Look back again at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ 
Jesus. I really like this wording from the English Standard Version, which is yours. In other words, believers in Jesus have the mind of Christ because they have a relationship with him. Because of what Christ did, that he lived a perfect life, that he died as a sacrifice for sin on the cross, that not only restores us to God, that enables us to live the way that Jesus lived. If we try to do it on our own, we'll get frustrated, we'll get tired, and we will ultimately fail. But if we know him, then God places his Holy Spirit in us, who enables us, empowers us to live with unity, humility, and selflessness, to live in a way that glorifies God. If you're looking at the verses, the way it is, you could think about it is because of what Jesus does in verses six and eight, stepping down, dying uh, on the cross, because of what he does there, that enables us to receive the Holy Spirit. Verse five talks about this, this mind is ours in Christ Jesus. And so then we're able to live out what he says in verses two and four, so that Christ is praised as he talks about in verses 9 through 11. So what what are we saying? We're, We're saying that the only way to live out this mind of Christ, to know true love, to live out true love in our relationships with others is by the Holy Spirit. It's by God working in us. If you want proof of that, look just two verses after where we are today. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Loving by the mind of Christ is not something we can do by our own effort. God has to work through us. And that's why in Ephesians 5.2, Paul tells believers, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It is only because of what Christ has done that we are able to live out, that we are able to practice, that we can even have the mind of Christ. So what are we to do? Well, in a world that prioritizes looking out for yourself, how refreshing would it be if Christians modeled biblical love and sought unity with others? What if Christians viewed themselves humbly and selflessly sacrificed their interest? Because love without the mind of Christ is self-focused. But love, defined this way, is others-focused. It leads to God's glory. So if you're a Christian, well, let's, let's reclaim the mark, the sign of what Christians are to be known by. As Jesus says in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what is love? Well, love is the mind of Christ. And what is the mind of Christ? Unity, humility, selflessness. And the only way that we can have that and practice it is through a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. So what are we supposed to do? Well, there's only two ways you can respond to this. You can either have the mind of Christ, know Christ, practice it, or you cannot. And remember, you can only have this mind if you know him and have a relationship with him. The truth is that your sin, the wrong that you've done has separated you from God. And the only way you can be restored to that is believe and trust in what these verses are talking about here, that he came, that he lived, and he died on your behalf. 
He paid the penalty so you could be restored to a right relationship with God. So if you then turn away from sin and you trust in that, then you can know Jesus. You can have a relationship with him. He'll give the Holy Spirit to you so you can live in a way that shows unity, humility, selflessness toward others, that shows true love to others. If you want to know more about that, I'd encourage you to please reach out to me. My email is jtoon at eshorebaptist.org or reach out to whoever shared this video with you. And I'm sure that person would love to tell you more about how you can know and how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you truly know him, then you have the Holy Spirit within you. Does your life demonstrate this attitude, this mind of Christ? If not, then then turn away from your failure and commit to living for the Lord according to how he has described. And so for all of us, the choice is ours. Will we embrace Christ? Will we love others? Will we live out the life of Christ? I pray that your life will be characterized by unity, humility, and selflessness. I pray that you will live out the mind of Christ because that kind of love brings glory to God and he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love and thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for this example, the mind of Christ. Lord, build in us that we may live in unity, humility, selflessness, not by our own ability, but by your Holy Spirit in us. Pray if anyone doesn't know you, that they will seek you, turn from sin, embrace a relationship with you. And if someone does know you, I pray that you are molding, shaping, growing them into the man or woman that reflects your glory for your praise so that we can rejoice together. Lord, in all things, we give you the praise because this is only possible because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.